snuck in some side door or got in without one. So the ushers have been way ahead of the turn on this one. Everybody got a copy of the No Debt, No Sweat workbook, right? Okay. Well, listen, let me welcome you to our very first of four sessions of our, of our get-together. This first session is going to sort of be, well, it's going to be two things. It's going to be our first session, but it's also going to be our Sunday school get-together this morning so that everybody will know up front we are going to run about 10 minutes longer than normal. We'll get everybody, this is going to be about a 55-minute visit with each other this morning. The teachers already know about this. Hopefully, we've addressed the guy that's supposed to ring the bell, too, and he knows about it. So we'll, uh, we'll plan to um, go just a little bit longer than normal. Let me get a couple of quick points of business out of the way before we even start the seminar. Number one, number one, everywhere I go, I have people come up to me and they say, Steve, do you know who you look like? So let me just get that over with. Yeah, I know who I look like. Now, I get three or four different things. Occasionally, somebody will come up with something totally off the reservation. They'll say something like, Steve, you look like Chevy Chase or something. I don't get that, but I hear it once in a while. A little more frequently, and don't laugh when I say this, because if you do, you're going to hurt my feelings. This guy was handsome. But they'll come up occasionally and they'll say, Steve, you look a little bit like Peter Jennings from ABC News. Now, I don't get that one, but I like that. However, about 98% of the time, when folks come up to me, they come up and they say, Steve, do you remember Gomer Pyle? <laughs> so yes, I do know who I look like. <laughs> so I'll get that out of the way here real fast, okay? Now, second thing I want to get out of the way is this. In the, our get-together this morning, this evening, and our two get-togethers tomorrow evening, I'm going to be sharing a lot of stories in order to build broader points. Some of these stories actually go back 15, 20 years or even longer. And the truth of the matter is, I don't have Alzheimer's, but I've got a pretty bad case of part-timers these days. I don't even get same-day delivery on some things anymore. My forgetter works better than my rememberer does. So I have to just up front tell people this. Folks, there are going to be some stories I don't remember all the details to. So there will be some times when I'm going to tell you more than I know. I'm going to have to come up with some details to make the story fill out so I can make the broader point. So I hope you'll give me a little license, a little bit of liberty to do that. But with that said, let me invite everybody, if you will, to start out by taking your workbook, jot your name down somewhere on your workbook near the front of it. That way, if you leave it on a pew or something, you'll be able to figure out who's is who's a little later on. But then turn to the second opening in the workbook. On the left-hand page, it says the plan at the very top. I want to share with you two great principles that everything we're going to be talking about today, tonight, and tomorrow are going to be centered around. The first great principle that we're going to be talking about today and tonight is really the one that I shared with those of you that were in the first hour of worship this morning, and that is that things are frequently not the way they appear to be. <laughs> You, you might have heard about this old guy that went into the movie theater and sat down and started to watch the show. About five minutes into the movie, he notices something very strange. About two rows ahead of him is another guy sitting there. But seated next to this other guy is the biggest, the ugliest, the hairiest dog that this guy's ever seen in his life. And this first guy starts to watch the dog. And sure enough, the dog's watching the movie. And every time something funny happens, this dog yelps out. And when something sad happens, the dog kind of whines. And when the bad guy gets the good guy, the dog growls at the screen. Well, finally, this first guy can't take it any longer. He leans over, taps the other fellow, and says, Listen, I hate to bother you in the middle of the show like this, but I can't get over the way your dog seems to be enjoying the movie. 
guy looked back at him and said, you know, I can't either. He hated the book. (laughs) Folks, things are frequently not the way they appear to be. And the reality is this. A lot of us in this room right this minute are not the way we appear to be either. We've all come in here, we've combed our hair, and most of you guys are wearing matching socks, and, you know, everything is looking pretty good. But the hard, cold reality is this. On average, a little over 70% of us, the real number is 72% of us, are struggling with money problems. The fact is, many of us are in money troubles, and we do not want to admit it. This is probably the most aggressively hidden sin today in the church. Today in the church, we will talk about everything. We'll talk about internet pornography. We'll talk about divorce and remarriage. We'll talk about everything you can think of. But nobody wants to stand up and say, hey, I am in real trouble with my money. And this is killing Christian stewardship, Christian vitalities, Christian vigor, even Christian spirituality nationwide. We have got a humongous problem with this. I want to come back to this point in a minute, but I will tell you that until we begin to develop the koinonia style fellowship that the scriptures talk about where we become each other's best friends and we start to talk to each other instead of thinking of church as something where you go on Sunday morning and you sit there for about an hour and you look at the head in front of you and then you get up and you try to slip out. Until we stop doing that and we start really communing with each other, we're never going to get over this. The devil is very pleased with us when we come in and we become our little island to ourselves, and we get up and leave. And let me just say this, this starts in the home. There are some of you married people sitting in here right this minute. There are some of you married people sitting in here right this minute who think that you are sleeping with the enemy. You're not. That husband, that wife that you have is the very best friend that God will ever give you on the face of this earth. I'm just telling you. It's the devil who's the enemy. And when we confuse ourselves and allow ourselves to think that our spouse is the enemy, we're already having troubles. But it has to go further. And and I'll I'll tell you this. This seminar isn't going to work any magic. I'm a very frail, sinful man. I I have got so many faults and flaws in my life. It, It startles me to be up in front of people talking. I'm telling you that There's not enough I can say in our get-togethers to deal with this problem the way it needs to be dealt with. All I can do and hope is to get people to begin to open their eyes. This is only going to work if the Mount Juliet Church begins to build an ongoing culture where people talk about this, where you have studies, where husbands and wives talk about it together, where some of you women get off and talk about it, some of you guys do. Maybe some of you couples get together at each other's homes and you pop some corn and you start talking. And if you don't know how to start the conversation, let me tell you how to start it. Start it out by saying something like, you know something, my wife and I are fighting all the time over money. We haven't given anything at church in six months and I'm sitting bolt upright in bed at three o'clock in the morning scared to death. You start the conversation that way and you will begin some talk. So the first great truth is this. Folks, things are not the way they appear to be. About 72% of us are struggling. I'll come back to that point in a minute, but before we go any further, let me very quickly jump to that second great truth. The second great truth that everything in the No Debt, No Sweat seminar is going to be built around is the fact that there is always only one best way to do anything. Listen, I don't give a royal rip what you're talking about. There may be five or 10 or 50 different ways to accomplish a goal but there remains one best way to do it. And successful people are the people who find the best way to do something and then they just keep on doing it over and over and over and over again. Y'all might have heard the story about old Jed. 
Jed had graduated from high school. He was not the sharpest knife in the drawer back in school, though. And here he is five years after graduation, and everybody is wondering about Jed. Jed has come back to his hometown, and nobody can figure this thing out. Jed has become like a quadzillionaire. He's the richest guy that's ever come out of this little town in five years. And nobody understands it. So finally, some of his old friends from high school get their courage up, and they come over here and they say, Jed, we've just got to ask you a question, old guy. How in this world did you ever get so rich? Jed said, well, I don't know. He said, I just go over there to China, and I buy those whatchamabobs for $3 a piece. Then I bring those whatchamabobs back over to the United States. Of America. And I sell those whatchamabobs that I bought in China for $3. He said, I'm selling them here in the United States for $7. And he said, I can't figure this thing out either, but somehow I'm getting by just fine on my little 4% markup. <laughs> you don't have to be real smart to be real successful. What you have to do is find the best way to do something and keep on doing it over and over and over again. Now listen, there is no way that I can teach this material if I'm going to do it with any integrity without at least admitting to you and as I alluded to this a moment ago, that I have not always done this stuff the way I'm teaching it. I can tell you truthfully that most of the last 25 years, Bonnie and I have done this kind of thing, but there have been a lot of times that, that I've been very disappointed in my own wife's husband. I am not really, you know, the perfect example. I do practice what I preach, but there were some early years when we had some real troubles. I can tell you that this ministry... <clears throat> probably started back in the late 1970s. And I didn't even know it back then. This was back, Bonnie and I were newlyweds. We were deeply in love with each other. But we had a bucket load of debt. I mean, we had school debt, credit cards, car loans, just all of that junk that many people have that was just kind of mucking up our lives. And there came a time going into the 1980s when Bonnie and I started to realize, hey, this is not the way God needs us to be living. We need to do some things differently here. So going through the 80s, we started to learn some more principles about money and about how to do things. I started reading some, some Christian material on this. And God blessed us. And again, I'm not bragging about us at all here. But I'm telling you that by the end of the 1980s, God had blessed us. And Bonnie and I, for all practical purposes, had stepped completely out of debt. I mean, we'd even paid off our home. And I'm telling you, life was better. My car drove better when I didn't owe money on it. Everything was better. So going into the 1990s, I got more excited about this. I started studying economics and investing. I began for the first time to study what the Bible has to say about money. The Bible has more than 2,300 passages in it that deal with money and materialism. One out of eight of Christ's comments dealt with money or materialism. The Bible is chalk-packed full of teaching about money that I had never really noticed before. So going through the 90s, I was gradually finding myself working with more and more people who were struggling with money. And I remember somewhere in the mid-90s, a publisher who knew that I'd written a couple of other books came to me and he said, Steve, uh, what do you think about writing a book on this topic? And that was when we came up with this name, No Debt, No Sweat. 
And I said, well, what do you have in mind? He said, well, we could write a book that would just be kind of the whole thing that a family would need to know about money. How to get completely out of debt in one to four years. How do you develop a budget? How do you get husbands and wives to stop fighting? What do you teach the kids? How do you give like God wants you to give? What do you do about practical things like car buying and insurance and home buying? And how do you get ready for a dignified retirement? And how does investing work? And how do you become a long-term giver to God? And what do you teach the kids and, all, and pay for college and all this stuff? And I thought, well, you know, that's a great plan, but I didn't have the time to do it. I was running a business. I just didn't have time to do it. Well, in 2000, God bless us, we sold the company. And uh, the elders at the Antioch Church, where we'd been members since the 70s, spoke to me about becoming an elder. I didn't want to do that. But, but uh, they said, well, Steve, we'll let you come on staff, and we'll let you begin to develop this ministry here. And I thought, well, you know, that would be fine. I'd, I'd like to work under the oversight of these guys. They're my best friends anyway. So, so I went to work in 2000 at the Antioch Church of Christ. In 2001, I started writing the No Debt, No Sweat book. And we'll have some copies of it available later this evening if, if you want to look at one of these. And you, there's no need to unless you choose to, but we'll have some out there. But at any rate, I started writing the book in 2001 for the first edition. And one of the elders actually at some point during the year came up to me and he said, Steve, do you even know if this stuff of yours works? I thought, well, no, I don't know that it does. I mean, it worked for Bonnie and me, but we've never tested it. And they said, well, why don't you think about teaching it here at Antioch and, and see what happens? And we did. And we started teaching this material in late 2001. And we had people who were getting out of debt. We had people giving more. We had marriages that were improving. We actually had visitors coming. I know we baptized off of this. It was really a neat experience. So in 2002, when the first edition of No Debt, No Sweat came out, it's now in its ninth printing, and it's either the second or third edition, I'm not sure. But, but when it first came out in 2002, we thought, well, we'll mention this around and see if anybody would like to do a seminar. Uh, and, and, and I remember one of my elders even at that point asked me, he said, Steve, how many of these seminars can you do each year? And I laughed and I said, I'm going to do as many as I can. I could probably do 10 or 12 a year. Well, thanks to the people at Christian Chronicle and people at Harding, Harding has now offered this as a for credit course. And we've done it at Lipscomb five times and Heritage Christian University has offered it three times, I know. And around the country, people started hearing about it. And I got real busy. And I'm telling you, it's been five and a half years since we did our first seminar in March of 2002. This seminar today is our 260th No Debt, No Sweat seminar. And folks, this has nothing to do with this messenger. It has everything to do with this message. This is a message that is needed widely, broadly, and deeply all through our fellowship. And people are not talking about this, and things are getting worse. And this really kind of brings me back to that first point. Of, of, of just simply saying to you that, that things are not the way they appear to be. And we've got to understand this. Listen, folks, the devil is a roach. He is a roach. Have you ever gone into a dark room and flipped on a light and seen a roach in the middle of the floor? Now, don't you folks up here in Mount Juliet look at me like you haven't seen roaches. <laughs> we've got them down in Brentwood, and I can tell you our roaches down there need landing gear. When you go into a room, you flip on a light, you see a roach. What does the roach do? Somebody. Yeah, He's out of there. And why is that? It's because roaches don't like the light, right? Well, when we start to shine the light of Jesus Christ on the devil, he'll be like a roach. He will get out of our lives. Things will start to change. But to do that, we have got to get communicative. We have got to begin to build a broader culture within our churches. And again, I'm pleading with you, don't let this seminar come and go and this be the end of it. You've got to give this legs. You've got to build it further. You've got to talk about these things. Because if not, the devil will swamp our boats, uh, our boats again. Chuck Swindoll says the church today has gotten to be way too much like a bag of marbles. And you think, well, 
What's wrong with marbles? They're all in there together, and they are. But the trouble with a bag of marbles is this. Marbles are hard. They're rigid. They bang their way through that bag. Instead, what we as God's kids, the church, need to be more like, we should be more like a bag of grapes that are about a week old, that you forgot and left out in the trunk. Have you ever done anything like that? You pop the trunk, you think, oh, my stars, and you reach in there, and you pull this bag of grapes out, you look inside, and what you see inside doesn't look like a beautiful bunch of grapes anymore, does it? It looks more like an oozy, congealed, runny, blobby mass of something, and it's kind of hard to tell where one grape stops and the next one starts. Now, brothers and sisters, that may sound a little bit gross, but that's what we Christians need to be like. We need to be so involved, so invested in each other's lives that we honestly don't know where one of us stops and the next one starts. So let me just say this. If you've come in here this morning and you are struggling, you're part of that 70%, then I promise you, you've come to safe ground. I promise that we are going to be talking about some things that I think you're going to be finding very valid. So if this morning you are sick and tired of just having too much month left at the end of the money, if you're sick and tired of robbing Peter to pay Paul or Betty or Fred or Ethel or Ricky or Lucy or somebody else, if you're sick and tired of renting your life instead of being able to buy your life, we're going to be talking about some practical things that as Christians we can rethink the paradigm on and we can do some things differently. Let me just tell you right now, I am not going to be teaching this stuff the way the world teaches it. You know, the world tells us this. The, the message from the media is essentially this. If you want to be happy, you have to have more of three things. You'll, you'll, I think you'll hear this and agree that this is right. The media tells us we have to have more of three things to be happy. We have to have more stuff, we have to have more sex, and we have to have more money. Isn't that what the media's message to us is all the time? Well, folks, if that were true, the happiest families would all be out in Hollywood. But we Christians keep on falling into the same trap. So I'm not interested in teaching God's kids how to look good. Everybody knows what looking good in America is today? It's the three cars we can't afford, the designer clothes that don't fit, the, the house we can't pay, make the payments on, and, and, and the uh, boat that we're not even using. That's looking good in America today. Instead, what I'm trying to help Christians do is learn how to live good with a paid-for car, having a house that doesn't put us in the poor house, making spending decisions that our kids over here can respect. And having money available anytime one of God's causes comes along. What I want to do today is I want, I want to share with you the God's skills, the life skills, and the money skills that have all got to converge together in the center of the wheel to really make this thing happen. I am not interested, like I said, in teaching you all the same stuff the world does. I'm not going to be giving you the same advice that you hear on those idiot infomercials that run in the middle of the night telling you how to buy somebody's books and tapes and get rich. I'm not going to be doing that. I'm not going to be giving you the same advice that you see on some of the slick brochures at the bank. I'm not even going to be giving you the same advice that your brother-in-law who just got his broker's license may be giving you. What we're going to be talking about in here is not tricky little bill consolidation techniques. Now tomorrow night we will talk some about bill consolidation, but bill consolidation is not my message. My message is bill cancellation. But folks, for us to do this, we've got to understand something that is very important. For many of us, the first step to financial capability is going to be through a very, very deep pit of failure. Many of us never see success until we have gone through the worst of times. Now what does this mean? Here's what I mean by, on a financial level anyways. Some of the people in America today who are financially most 
comfortable, who are most able and capable, are the same people that only a few years ago, in some cases as few as two to four years ago, were in terrible pits of financial pain. But they determined to develop the strategies, the skills, and the disciplines that they needed to get from where they were to where they needed to be. And it changed their lives. I'll tell you what, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Let's go back about 50 years, back to 1957-58. Those were two pretty cool years here in America. 1957-58, it was a neat time. We had won the war, the baby boom had begun, America was feeling her collective oats in the late 1950s. 1957, 1958, those were the years that Danny Thomas, the tales of Wells Fargo, Gunsmoke, were capturing our tele-attention in the evenings. Those were the years, 1957 was the year that Billboard magazine started its first Hot 100 chart. Pat Boone, the McGuire's, Elvis Presley, they were all racking up hits in 1957 and 58. 1957 and 58, that, those were the years when we really got serious with the space program. We launched our first Earth satellite, Explorer 1. 1957, those were the days when our tele-attention in the evenings was aimed at Gunsmoke and Danny Thomas and the tales of Wells Fargo. 1957, 1958, a very good time in America, a very successful time, but not for everybody. 1958 was also the year that the Ford Motor Company introduced a brand new car that it told us was going to be the innovative, was going to be an inno, the, the innovative niche filler for an entire generation of people buying cars. But there are not a lot of us here in 2007 who would associate the word success with the name what? Edsel. But Ford didn't start out planning for Edsel to fail. They planned for it to succeed. I mean, everything about this car was neat. There was a push-button transmission control in the center of the steering wheel. Uh, the name was chosen from over 7,000 names that had been entered by the Ford employees, the ad agency guys, even the famous poet Marianne Moore. She entered some names. Everywhere you looked, there was promotion on TV. Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney were singing about this car. Mr. Ford made a film where he said, America, I'm proud to tell you that the Edsel is here to stay. <laughs> but alas, it didn't work out that way. One person described the Edsel sales chart as looking like a dangerous downhill ski slope. It kept getting worse and worse. Now, why the Edsel didn't sell, I don't know. Some people say, well, the reason the Edsel didn't sell was because it was too big. Maybe so. The big, bold, bombastic cars from the early 1950s were starting to give way to smaller, more fuel-efficient rides. Maybe it was because it cost too much. That's what some people say. Other people say, no, it wasn't because it was too big. It wasn't the price. It was just because the thing didn't work. You know, the hoods didn't close, the trunks didn't open, and that fancy transmission, that thing never lived up to its mission. Well, folks, I don't know why the Edsel didn't sell. But I do know that after less than three horrible years at the Ford Company, they finally shut down production on the Edsel. Now you may be thinking, well Steve, what in the world does this Edsel thing have to do with me? And the truth is, it may not have anything to do with you. You may be part of the 25 or 30 percent of this audience who are doing very well financially. And if you are, please stay with me. Tonight, and especially tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about that. I'm going to be talking to you about what to teach the kids about money, how to <clears throat> get ready for a dignified retirement, how to become a godly giver. But on the other side of the fence, you may be part of the 70% of this audience who really do understand how it feels to fail. I mean, you started your young adult life out planning to succeed. You thought, surely, by 2007, we'll have money in the bank. We'll be able to go on some nice vacations, send the kiddos to college. We'll be able to give money anytime something comes along at church. 
But for some of us, this great American dream long ago morphed into something that feels more like a gothic nightmare. A lot of you can identify with this. I know I can. You know what it feels like to sit bolt upright in bed in the middle of the night, not having a clue how you're going to pay the bills you've ordered, and you're afraid to answer the phone because every time you do it, there's another collector at the other end. And by the way, in an audience this size, there are dozens of you who have in the last week gotten calls from bill collectors. I know how painful that is. You've ordered another credit card because all the other cards are maxed out. One person indicates that today the average family has seven credit cards and at any given moment, five of those things are maxed out. Even when you go to, or you dread talking to your spouse about money because boom, every time you do it, it ends in a fight. According to Gallup research, money troubles are now the number one cause of divorce in America. It's not sexual problems, it's not communication issues, it's money. 56% of divorces are now listing money as the number one cause. Even when you go to church or to a ball game where your mind should be focused on what you're doing, you find your thoughts drifting back to the money things that you're struggling with at home. And maybe the saddest one of all is that very bottom one. Even when a good cause comes along, something you believe in, something you want to give to, your heart breaks because you just don't have anything left to give. Listen, if you can identify with any of those situations, what we're going to be talking about in this room, I promise you, really is for you. Because we're going to be talking about doing it the Ford way. What Ford had to do in 1959, 1960 was some very tough stuff. They had to make a hard decision. Were they going to just sit there in their pity puddle and feel sorry for themselves and see the whole company melt down? Or were they going to do the hard things, develop the strategies, the skills, the disciplines that they needed to get from where they were to where they wanted to be? They did number two. And arguably today, and I know they're having some hard times right now, but arguably Ford is the most successful maker of cars in the history of the world. I'm telling you, as Christians, we can develop the same strategies and skills and disciplines that we need to get through these messes and change things. But to do this, what we have to do is something else. We have to understand that we are all like fish in a barrel. I don't care who you're talking about, whether you're talking about the banks or the telemarketers or the credit card companies or the retailers or the real estate people or the insurance people. It doesn't make any difference. Everybody out there already has a plan for your money. And the plan is real simple. The plan brothers come over here to your billfold and suck all that money out and take it over here and drop it into their corporate coffers. Now, I'm not saying that these are bad people, but I am saying that we'd better get smart or we're going to spend the rest of our lives at the end of every month feeling dumb and stupid, wondering what happened to my money. I mean, retailers, they study us. They know exactly what we're going to do. Retailers know, for instance, that when you walk into one of their stores, more likely than not, you're going to make an immediate right-hand turn and do sort of a counterclockwise sweep through that store. That's why smart retailers will frequently put their highest priced most profitable items over here in the sweet spot immediately to the right-hand side of the door. And have you noticed in the grocery stores in the last few years how the shopping carts seem to keep growing bigger and bigger? Have you noticed that? It's like they're on steroids. The studies show that people like to try to fill up their cart. So, duh, give them a big one. That's why they don't have as many handbaskets in grocery stores as they used to. The handbasket gets heavy, people would go to the checkout line. They'd a whole lot rather get you behind one of those mega cruisers going up and down the aisles for about two hours because they know that for every one minute that we spend in the grocery store, we're going to spend two and a half dollars. Grocers, they know that we will spend more money on a product that is on a shelf at body or eye level 
than we will for an equally good one that isn't. This box of cereal, depending on where you're at in the United States and what the sales taxes are, usually sells for something a little under $4. But this bag of cereal, which by the way, everybody knows this is essentially the same stuff as this, right? And by the way, there's more in here than there is in here. This bag of cereal usually sells for about $2, a little over two, a little under four. Now this box is usually on a shelf at about body or eye level. Where's this bag usually at? Yeah, a lot of times it's right down here on that bottom shelf. You've got to put on a helmet, a spelunker's light, and go digging, <laughs> and voila, you come up with a bargain. They know how we think. They know how we tick. They know how we operate. Let me read you something from, Steve, uh, from uh, Brian Wainsick. Brian Wainsick is an expert in retail marketing, if I can find it here. Here it is. Here's what he says. He says that people like stores that have a lot of variety, and people perceive a store to have a lot of variety if there's a certain degree of jumble and a lack of predictability. That's why when we go into a TJ Maxx, we're likely to find socks in a bin right next to picture frames. And that's why when you go into the grocery store, more often than not, now some stores are changing this, but more often than not, Campbell's Soup is not in any kind of a, of a predictable order. A while back, Bonnie was out of town, the girls and I were at home together. I asked them, I said, well, is, what, what are we going to have for dinner? They said, well, Dad, we could have soup and sandwich. I said, great. They said, trouble is, we don't have any soup. Could you go get some? Well, you know, I'm a big boy. I know how to do that. I said, sure. What do you want? They said, we need two cans. Get some kind of vegetable soup and get some bean with bacon soup. So I drove down to the, to the Kroger near our house, parked the car, got out, came in. And man, I get hit by this wall of red and white striped cans. I'm in Campbell's land. Well, I'm thinking, well, this can't be that hard. I mean, bean with bacon, that starts with a B. I'll just go up here to the B's. Those things were not alphabetized. There was no order to them. And besides, I'd done something else dumb that night. I'd gone into the store hungry. <laughs> Don't ever do that. I'm telling you, I stood there for the most part of five or ten minutes looking for those two cans of soup. Everything looked so good. I came home that night with seven cans of soup. They know how we tick. They know how we think. You know, real estate people know that if they get into the house first and pop some cinnamon buns in the oven, you're going to be more likely to buy it. Insurance people know that scare stories sell policies. And seriously, folks, how many cars do you reckon have been sold on payment plans that lasted longer than the car? That's why banks have drive-up windows, so your car can see who owns it. Bad planning. You see, what we have to do is this. We have to understand that America has a closet sin. You can call it consumerism. You can call it materialism. I personally like to call it stuffaholism. You know, what we might try doing is calling it what Jesus called it. Jesus called it being in love with this present world. It's that attitude of ingratitude that says, L'Oreal is right. I am worth it. And this is what gets us into the trouble. You see, the financial pain that we have in our lives comes from bad financial decisions. We make those bad decisions, but we're ashamed to admit it because, after all, we're people of the mask. We come to church. We don't really open up. We don't really communicate. We don't really fellowship. We don't really have that koinonia relationship that I was talking about. So we hide these things. Things go from bad to worse until finally the house of cards falls in on itself. That's what's going on in the lives of people hundreds of thousands of Christians around this country right now. Elders, elders in the room, listen to me for a minute. For every time that you've had a couple come walking into one of your elders' meetings and announce to you that they were getting a divorce and you didn't even know they were having the problem, you've probably got five or ten people sitting in this room right now that are struggling with money. 
People hide this, and this is why the devil beats us at it. We have got to get communicative. It's very, very important to do that. Listen, here's the thing. God knows how we tick. He built us. He's given us the owner's manual. God is pulling for us. Two things I've got to remember. As long as Steve Diggs denies or excuses any sin in my life, I'm going to simply fall farther and farther behind. And number two, there really is strength in numbers. This again gets back to that point that we have got to build community. We've got to communicate. We've got to talk about these things. We've got to really go deeper with this. You know, James might have known what he was talking about when he said that Christians need to confess their sins one to another and pray for each other because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Avails much. It does a lot of good. It changes things. Um, here's my point. My point is simply this. People who are struggling financially are frequently in a state of denial. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the river in Egypt, okay? We're talking about a broken, dysfunctional lifestyle. Today, the average Christian in America is giving God just a little over 2% of his income. And by the way, many of us, on average, are spending about 20% of our income paying off short-term, high-interest-rate credit card debt. Now get the picture here. That means MasterCard is getting 20%. The master is getting 2%. That's bad. We don't need to be doing like that. The devil knows all this stuff and he loves it. These are not very happy, clappy facts, folks, but these are true. As of 2005, first time since the Great Depression, we Americans are now spending more than we're making as a country. We're spending over $2 trillion a year using credit cards. That's more than we're spending with cash and checks combined. And no, I'm not Dave Ramsey. And I, Dave's a friend of mine. I appreciate a lot of things that Dave does, but I'm not going to come in here and tell people it's a sin to have a credit card. Tomorrow night, I'm going to teach you how to deal with credit cards, get out of credit card bondage, but that is not my message. However, credit cards are a huge part of the problem. The debt, uh, the debt on credit cards has doubled in the last 10 years. As I've already said, the experts are telling us that money problems are the leading cause of divorce. And moms, dads, congratulations. We're doing a great job as parents. The average kid that comes out of college today comes out with twenty dollars to $30,000 of school debt. That's the average. A car loan plus about four dollars to $5,000 of credit card debt. Now, kiddos, listen to me for a minute. And moms, dads, listen, please. I don't care if you have to drag the kids to church tonight and nail their tongue to the pew. You get them here, okay? Because we're going to be talking about this tonight. Here's the deal. As of the 1990s, less than 10% of college kids had credit cards. Today, more than 70% of kids in college have credit cards. The average kid that has a credit card now has five credit cards. And do you know how these kids are paying off, off their credit card bills each month more all the time? More and more of them are using their long-term college loan money to pay off their short-term college debt. Or their, I should say their short-term plastic debt is what I meant to say. And these kids are coming out so deeply in debt that many of them, if they don't do a U-turn like in a New York minute, they're never going to be out of debt again. They're never going to be able to give to God's church when they become adults. They are never going to be able to pay for their own kids' college. They're never going to be able to do the things that we think that they ought to be able to do. Tomorrow night, or I, I'll do it. I, I'll do it tonight or tomorrow night. One. I want to talk to you some more about what. About, about how they're targeting our kids for debt. It's a little thing called affinity marketing, but folks, listen, they are selling debt to our kids these days the way they used to sell hamburgers to us. It's wrong, it's immoral, and we'll, we'll talk some more about that. Um, credit card debt's exploded today. According to one study, the average family with credit cards has over $12,000 of debt. That holds true to the studies that we do in churches of Christ around the country. Oh, and here's an interesting one. One study shows that fully 27% of Americans are now convinced 
that the best shot they have of ever becoming a millionaire is to win the state lottery. I'm just going to tell you something. I am not a very politically correct guy. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. Do I have exits up here if I need? Yeah, I've got an exit. I'm, I can get out if you charge me. But let me just tell you something. Brothers and sisters, we Christians have got no business messing with these state lotteries. Why? It's because they're gambling. Well, what's wrong with gambling? Gambling is a predatory behavior. Somebody has to lose for someone else to gain. And we Christians don't need to be a party to that. Listen, if I'm not saying this clearly enough, state lotteries are a tax on the stupid and the broke. And we Christians should not be stupid or broke, nor should we take advantage of those who are. And the reality is this, your odds of winning a big payout in a lottery are way less than one in eight million. There's a better chance that a flea will go in your right ear and come out your left eyeball singing Dixie than there is that you're going to win a big payout in a lottery. We don't need to believe all that advertising. I'm going to show you some productive ways to make this work. But to start this thing, we have to ask the question, where do we start? And when I've got a problem, the best thing I've ever found to do is to try to find someone with a solution. One of my heroes is a guy named Vince Lombardi. How, how many of you all remember Lombardi? Yeah, it's football country. 1970, September of 70, was when Vince Lombardi died. When he died, he was the winningest coach that the NFL had ever had. He led the Green Bay Packers to five NFL championships to two Super Bowl wins. This guy knew football. Story goes that the beginning of practice every season, Lombardi would get his team seated, and then he, he was a little short, fat guy. He would kind of waddle over here to his duffel bag, reach inside and pull out a football, and get back in front of these guys and say, gentlemen, before we start practice this season, I want to introduce you to the item that I am presently holding. This is what they call a football. And that was where he began practice every season because he was trying to make a point. He wanted these guys to understand that he did not give a rip if they knew all the nuances of the game, had all the plays in the book memorized, or even knew all the plays in the other team's books. He didn't care about that stuff. He knew that they weren't going to win very many football games until they understood the fundamentals, until they got the basics between their ears. And it's exactly the same with money. We've got to understand the fundamentals. And I want to share four of those with you real quickly. Number one, you're not alone. Now, I've said this about eight times. I'm going to keep on saying it because the devil doesn't want you to hear it. If you're struggling today, look down the pew, about three out of four of us are struggling. That's the truth. By the way, <clears throat> people that are in debt believe three things that are wrong. Number one, they think they're all alone. Number two, they think they're dumb. Being dumb and being in debt are not the same thing. And number three, they feel hopeless. Tonight, I will show you a plan that will get virtually anybody out of debt in one to four years, completely not counting your home. You're not hopeless. Number two, we need to understand that there are some productive things that we can do to get from where we are to where we need to be. But number three, truth in advertising requires that I tell you that we didn't get where we're at overnight and we're not going to fix this problem overnight either. Back in uh, February of 1992, I was 39 years old when they wheeled me into St. Thomas Hospital. And before they let me go, they had done five heart bypasses on me. I was one scared guy. Um, I had a world-class wife, four cute little kids, and here I was at age 39 with five heart bypasses. Now, I had done everything dumb that a person could do for 39 years. I had overworked. I was as big as a blimp. I mean, you could have written Goodyear on the front of me, and I could have floated over ball games. <laughs> I, not, I wasn't really that big, but I was overweight. I got like no exercise. Maybe on a good night, I might like 
roll over in bed a time or two, <laughs> but I got like no exercise. And, and I remember after the surgery, a few weeks afterwards, I was sitting around the house feeling sorry for myself, thinking, man, I've got to get over this thing. How many of you in here have had bypass surgery? Okay. You all remember the days? That, that's the first few weeks before. You see, there's nothing to bypass surgery, by the way. There's nothing to it. It's simple stuff. They just buzz saw you open, do some plumbing work, hit you with some bailing wire, tell you go home and pray about it, right? I mean, that's pretty much it, right? Well, for the first few weeks before you heal up, every time you move, those bones rub against each other. Do you remember that? And they go, well, this was during the period when I was laying in bed feeling sorry for myself. And I thought, well, nuts, I've got to get in shape. Now, remember, I had never been in shape. I was the kind of guy that'd be driving his car to work and somebody would go jogging past me and I'd think, poor person, don't they have a car? You know, I, I just didn't get this whole thing. But I decided suddenly, I'm going to get into shape. Well, back in those days, all four kids were at home. We homeschooled the kids. So I had to wait till Bonnie was down at the other end of the house. And then I snuck back up to the bedroom. And I pulled on a pair of shorts and got on a t-shirt, put on some tennis shoes, and I snuck out the front door. And my plan was real simple. I was just going to jog until I got over this thing. So I went jogging. I don't know how far I got. I'm probably a couple hundred yards down the road. And the weirdest thing happened, folks. The sky started going round and round in circles. <laughs> I came down to the side of the road like a bucket of rocks. I mean, I was, I was in real trouble. Well, Bonnie's my best buddy, and it doesn't take her very long. She kind of started looking around the house, popped her periscope up, and I wasn't where I was supposed to be. So she got in her car, and she came a-looking for me. <laughs> and I will never forget that magical moment in our relationship when Bonnie's car crested that hill, and her eyes met my eyes. Boy, she was mad. <laughs> I thought she was going to roll over me and kill me dead. I mean, she was ticked off. But she got down there and she got me back in the car. We got through that mess. But I learned an important lesson. I learned that I wasn't going to fix 39 years of bad behavior in 39 days. I had to have a plan, had to work the plan. But by doing that, things have changed. I can tell you, <clears throat> it's been over 15 years now. God has been so good to me. I haven't had a steak yet. I can't eat fried food, but I, you know, I'm, I'm running four and a half miles at a whack three days a week. I feel great, and God is good. You've got to have a plan. You've got to work the plan. And number four, I guarantee by getting back to basics, and I don't make very many guarantees in life, but I do guarantee by getting back to basics, we can have a more successful future than a lot of us have ever thought. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow night, and I want to spend some serious time tomorrow night talking about borrowing money, because in Christian circles today, as you know, there are two broad teachings. There are the people that you hear on the radio that say, you know, just name it and claim it. I call them the blab it and grab it group. And they're just saying, you know, send me $100. God's going to give you $1,000. Grow your kingdom. Borrow all you want to borrow. God wants you to be rich. I disagree with this. To me, this is bad theology. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. But today, we have another group of people on this side who are telling godly people like yourselves that all borrowing is sinful, that you should never even own a credit card, and on and on it goes. I don't, I don't agree with this either. The Bible does, to my knowledge, nowhere tell us that all forms of borrowing are sinful. However, the Bible does warn about the dangers of debt. Proverbs 22 is a favorite go-to passage for me. Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower becomes the servant, and a better word here is the slave of the lender. You say, well, I'm not anybody's slave. Are you sure? You know, when we're being driven by the payment book and when we're stressed out all the time, you could really make the case that, that maybe we are under bondage. And you know, Jesus is the one who said you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
There are Christians that are trying to do this, and this is destroying our spiritual vigor, our ability to move forward for Jesus. Listen, let me give you two quickies, things to think about before we borrow money. And I do this with apology, by the way, to those of you who have some gray hair on top. Listen, I've noticed something. I've noticed that the generation before my generation, those of you who came before the baby boom, you guys got this stuff right. And sometimes you'll come up to me and you'll say, Steve, doesn't everybody know this stuff? And sadly, the answer is no, we don't. We baby boomers and those Gen Xers and Gen Yers, what do you call the kids now? Millennium babies, whatever they're called. We didn't get this stuff right. So in very short sentences with very few syllables, let me just share with us, those my age and younger, what we have to do before we borrow money. Number one, I need to ask myself a question. Steve, what's my motive? Why am I borrowing this stuff? You see, a lot of times our borrowing gets done because we don't trust God enough to provide. A lot of times there's an element of greed involved. Jesus talked about this. He said, watch out, be on your guard against all forms of greed. Why? Because a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions or his stuff. And a first cousin, this is a little thing called vanity. That gets us into a lot of trouble. Hey, real quickly, what do you think is the most expensive thing, the most costly thing you'll ever get? Somebody, real fast. Speak up. House, median price nationwide on homes right now is $230,000. Here in Nashville, it's about $190,000. I wish I had time to teach on home buying. I don't. There's a whole section in the book about it, but let me just say this very quickly. If you're thinking about buying a home, remember this. 30-year mortgages are great if you're a realtor or a mortgage banker. They're not great for you as a homeowner. Seriously, if you're going to borrow, say, $200,000, and depending on interest rates, let's suppose you're borrowing that for 30 years and your monthly payment's $1,000 intuitively you would think, oh, if I went from a 30-year down to only a 15-year mortgage, half as many payments, that would double my monthly payment of 1,000 to about 2,000 a month. It doesn't work that way. It would probably go up to about 13 or 1,400 a month, and you would probably save about $100,000 in interest over the term of that loan. But it's not home. Somebody said, kids, they're estimating a child born today is going to cost about $200,000 to get them up to age 18. And then if you want to give that kiddo a college education, and by the way, let me just tell you something, moms, dads, I don't believe this stuff that we've been told for two generations that says if you hatch one of them, you owe them a four-year education. I don't buy that stuff. Tonight, I'm going to be showing you some alternative ways to pay for college, okay? We're going to talk about that tonight. But, but they're estimating that a college education in 18 years is probably going to cost about a quarter million dollars. But it's not college, it's not kids, it's not the house. The most costly thing we will ever have is an out-of-control ego. (laughs) Because it makes us do dumb things that get us into trouble forever. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've bought stuff that I didn't even want with money that I didn't even have to impress people that I didn't even like. That's dumb. Been there and done that. So the first thing is, what is my motive? Second consideration before I borrow money is to ask the question, what's my ability to repay? Now again, you'd think that everybody would ask that, but no, we don't. We live in a culture that tries to hide that fact. But the depressing thing about borrowed money is, if we're Christians, we've got to give the stuff back. And that's when today's instant gratification becomes tomorrow's bondage. Hey folks, here's the news. 90 days is not the same as cash. There will be payments due before, when, 2084? I mean, that's just the way it happens. And that's when it starts to really hurt. Honestly, I have never been to a Red Lobster's or to a Chili's or to an Applebee's that was worth it. Did you know if right now you have, say, a credit card with, say, $4,000 of restaurant bills on it, and you're making that minimum payment? I'll show you tomorrow night how credit cards work and how those minimum payments work. But if you're making that minimum payment, did you know that in most cases it's going to take somewhere between 20 and 40 years to pay off that $4,000? Did you know that? Folks, 
there are some of us sitting in this room right now who have made payments this month on meals that we ate during the Reagan administration. That is not good financial stewardship. Listen, presuming on the future is what gets us into these problems that we have. Just when we think we're going to be ready to make that first payment on that brand new watchamabob, that's when, boom, Murphy's Law kicks in and, and something goes wrong. Everybody knows what Murphy's Law says. If something can go wrong, what? It's gonna. One of the kids needs some weird exotic medication that the insurance won't cover. Or, or the, a tree falls on the end of the house and you remember, oh, I've got that $1,000 homeowner's deductible plan. You know, James talked about this. He said, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then poof, you vanish away. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. But as it is, you boast and brag. Everybody read this last line with me. All such, help me out. Anybody? Anybody awake in here? Come on. All such boasting is evil. It's sinful. This is what gets Christians in trouble. Listen, folks, of all the people on the planet, we Christians are the ones who should be able to preact so we're not constantly having to react. You know, the Bible talks about this. The Bible says that the days of our lives are short. They're unpredictable. The Bible says the days of, of our lives are three score and ten, 70 years. And everybody knows that's poetic, right? I mean, we know some people live to be 90. Other people get hit by buses when they're 50. <laughs> but historically, 70 years has been fairly normal. One person broke those seven decades up this way. He said the first decade of childhood is the decade of spills, followed by the decade of school and drills, which is then followed by the decade of thrills, to be followed by the decade of bills which will then be followed by the decade of ills, to be followed by the decade of pills, to be followed by the decade of what? Wills. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? <laughs> but it's true. Listen, we're not going to know the day our coffin rolls into town or the day they cut the roses that go on top. But there are so many of us who go on day after day and year after year and even decade after decade without ever thinking of what really is coming. You know, God is pulling for us. He is on our side. And he's told us how to find an abundant life. And it is not what a lot of the guys on the radio tell us. And it sure is the world, not what the media tells us. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you've got. Because he himself, and praise God for this, has said, I will never desert you. Nor will I ever forsake you. Folks, it's only when we're set free from this kind of bondage that we're ever going to be of any good to other folks or to ourselves or to the kingdom work that God has called us to. You know, we've all heard the old saying about climbing the ladder of success. I'll just tell you, just truthfully, I got to a period years ago in my life where I hated that phrase. It was so trite, it was so overworked, and, I, and besides, I pictured some greedy old business guy crawling over somebody else to get what he wanted every time I heard it. I hated that phrase. But a few years ago, thanks to Stephen Covey, I rethought that. And I would tell you this today, that everybody in this room, every one of us, we need to be busy climbing our individual ladder of success. Kiddos, those of you that are in school, climb the ladder, ladder of educational success. Very, very important. Mamas, mothers, listen to me. Those of you who are 24-7 moms, God bless you. Keep climbing that ladder no matter what anybody says. 
men, women, those of you who are in business, keep climbing that ladder. David, Andrew, wherever you are, where's Andrew? Over there and the shepherds of this church, those who, who lead on a spiritual level, climb that ladder. But I'll tell you what I got to thinking about. I got to thinking some years ago, Steve, what's it going to be like the day you finally get to the top of your ladder? And, and what's more, how will you even know you're there? I mean, will that be the day that I... I take my best friend to the doctor and we find out that something's happened to Bonnie? That'd be the day that the phone rings and we learn that something's happened to one of the kids? That'd be the day that one of these things that comes and goes in my left chest comes and it just doesn't go away? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I know that the day I finally do get to the top of my ladder is not the day I want to find out that my ladder has been leaning against the wrong building. You know what I mean? Now what we're going to do is this. This evening we're going to kick off what I think of as the main part of the seminar. This has just been sort of our introduction. Tonight we're going to hit it at full steam. You notice that I talk pretty fast for the Southern boy. I run at about 500 words a minute with gust up to 700. It's because I've got a lot of stuff to say and I don't have a lot of time to say it in. But tonight we're going to kick off with the ABC session. I'll, I'll tell you what, rather than me tell you about that right now, maybe David, if it's okay, after the next worship hour, um, well, there are some of you that were here first hour, so let me just tell you real quickly. Tonight is the ABC session. That is the center of the whole seminar. The A tonight is when we're going to talk a little bit about learning to acknowledge who it is that owns everything. It's a teaching about godly giving and stewardship, getting our hearts right with God. The B, that's when we're going to talk about learning to budget. And I know nobody likes to talk about budgets. It's like discussing a root canal. But we're going to have fun. And we call them personal financial freedom plans. I'm going to show you how to do one that will rock your family's life forever. The C, that's when I'm going to show you how to control your money by building what we call a wolf barrier. It's a 10 stone wall to keep the wolf away from the door forever. How to pay off the short term debt that's ruining our lives in one to four years. How to develop an emergency fund. What do you do if you should suddenly lose your job? What do you do about insurance? How do you get ready for retirement? How do you pay for college? We're going to talk about all those things as we stack those stones tonight. Then tomorrow night, tonight we're starting at 6 o'clock I believe, is that correct? Tonight that's at 6 o'clock regular time. Tomorrow night we're going to kick off at 6.30, is that right? And we're going to do two sessions tomorrow night. The first session tomorrow night is the debt session. I'm going to give you a seven-step do-it-yourself credit repair kit tomorrow night. Tonight, I'm going to begin showing you that, that plan to get completely out of debt in one to four years. I'll conclude that tomorrow night. We're going to talk about how credit cards work tomorrow night. I will show you how to get completely out of credit card debt. We will talk about bill consolidation loans, debit cards, and also I'll show you a plan tomorrow night if you want me to, to get rid of your car loan forever. The average American's car loan is now 63 months long and they're paying almost $400 a month. And when that's gone, they're going to get another one. It's the credit cards and car loans that are beating Christians up. We're going to talk about how to get rid of that tomorrow night. And then our final session tomorrow night is really my favorite session of the whole seminar. That's the one when we look to the future. I want to share with you the six secrets of the world's great investors. These are simple things that most people just don't understand. But when you apply them, they change lives and legacies. I want to talk to you about mutual funds. Many of us own mutual funds, but we're a little unclear, a little, uh, uh, you know, uh, not sure how, kind of, 
queasy about how they work and not sure how they work together and all this carrying on, I will show you tomorrow night and bring clarity to how mutual funds work. And also we will end by talking a little bit about the difference between God's investment approach and Satan's investment approach, which is one that's based on greed. So with that said, let's do this. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll break huddle and get ready for a second hour of worship, okay? Father God, thank you so much for loving us so much. Father, I pray that you will take mamas and daddies home today and help them to kiss and cuddle and love on each other. And know what a blessing they've got. Help us to be kind to our children. Father, help the children to be respectful. And Father, for the women, for the men that will go home today without a husband or without a wife, I pray that you will be the one who will wrap your arms the tightest around them and that they will know how close you are. Father, help us to hold the torch high and bring us back together tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray and praise you. Amen. God's peace to you. See you this, this evening.